We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 4 through 14 through 19. So we're going to continue our way through Nehemiah this summer, and we'll be starting a new series in the fall. So um, as, I, as you turn there to Nehemiah chapter 5, um, verse 14, I want, to, I want you to think about a few things. I want you to think about our national holidays and uh, the fact that many of them are built around remembering someone or something. And so in January, we celebrate Martin Luther King and his contribution to uh, American history. Um, Mother's Day, we remember our mothers. Father's Day, we remember our fathers. Uh, Veterans Day, we remember all of our military men and women who served. And then tomorrow, many of you are off work and will barbecue if the Lord says the same and put meat on the grill and take time off of work. And it's a day where we remember soldiers not just soldiers in general, but soldiers who actually died in, in wars. And what you may not know is that Memorial Day was not always called Memorial Day. At one point in time, it used to be called Decoration Day. And it was a day in which uh, family members of military men and women who died in the war would actually go to tombs and they would decorate and they would clean off the debris and cut the, the cemetery grass and put flowers out there and they would take a chair perhaps. And since many funeral, uh, since many cemeteries were near churches, that there is a religious tradition wrapped up in it where family members from different communities would go to the cemetery and do this and then gather in a church and they would have a meal, a potluck meal, and you would literally remember loved ones who paid the ultimate price. There's something about remembering that's built into our very calendar that I think speaks to some needs and desires in our hearts. There's a lady by the name of Sion Priest, and she's a historian, and she spent three years traveling the world looking for photos and reading letters, and she read 30,000 of them, letters written by soldiers, written to their loved ones, family, and friends who did not return home alive. And so she scours through 300 years of material through nine different wars, and she compiles this information in a book. And there's a theme that I want to tease out, but I want to read uh, portions from a few of the soldiers' letters. One soldier wrote his wife, and they had conceived and uh, had a child right before he left. He said, I would give 10 years of my life if I could see you and Isabel, but for only a few precious seconds. I do not require to tell you that I know you can and will care for our little one. Fetch her up as like yourself and she will not have many enemies in the world. I will close now with love to you and my dear baby. Remember me, my dear love. Another soldier wrote to his mother and his closing words was, Mother, please try to forget my faults and remember me as your very loving son. And one soldier who wrote to his girlfriend, he says, hey, beautiful, I'm sorry I had to put you through this. If you receive this letter, then it means that I will not be returning to you home alive. I want to leave you with a few words. I want to tell you how much I've loved you and cared for you. You've been the apple of my eye. I bet my bloody lottery numbers will now come up now that I'm gone. 
Jane, I hope you have a wonderful and fulfilling life. I want you to get married and I want you to have children, but I will love you forever and I will see you again when you are old and wrinkly. I've told my parents that even though we are not yet married, that they must give you money out of my insurance and I want you to have fun with it. Okay, gotta go now. Love you forever. Celebrate my life because I love you. That what the author found out is that when she scoured through all of those letters, that there was a theme of love, but there was also a theme of remembrance. That these soldiers wanted to be remembered. They wanted their sacrifices to be remembered. They did not want to die on a battlefield and be buried in a tomb with no marker. They wanted to be remembered. So I want to start with that because I think it's helpful to kind of enter into our passage this morning that Nehemiah is this larger than life figure in this book. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of it. I mean, whether it's rebuilding the wall, whether it's returning from Susa to Jerusalem, whether it's looking opponents right in their eyes and empowering his people to grab weapons, to do war while they work, whether it's at the end of the book when he finds out that people are falling back into sin and he says, I will lay my hands on you, when he finds out that they are intermarrying and it's not an interracial marriage, it's an interfaith marriage, that he literally pulls out the hair of some of the men, that he is just really larger than life figure in this book. And yet, he wants to be remembered. So let's read Nehemiah four, um, chapter 5, verse 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all of my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the, from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for these people. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive and it is active and it is sharp and it is breathed out by God. You carry men along and you use their personalities, their stories. You carry them by your spirit to write this word. I do pray now that we would sit under it and that you would give us faith to believe. We ask that you would bind the evil one. He would delight to do nothing more than to keep us distracted, disengaged, and disconnected from the very word of life, which is for the building up of our souls. And so I pray that you would do war, King Jesus, 
that your people might listen attentively to you as you teach them through your servant. I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. There's a longing in all of us. We don't want to be forgotten. And I think we get glimpses of it when you sort of look at, just, just take a moment to look at our calendar. That all of our, most of our holidays are built around remembering. This year, um, Russell Westbrook was chasing Oscar Robinson for the most triple doubles. And it became, I mean, one of the leading stories in the NBA. Can he do, can he eclipse what Oscar Robinson did? It's the reason that as soon as a team wins a national championship, a banner goes up where they play because forever you will always enter into Boston Garden and you will know that the Celtics of a certain year won championships. That there's something about remembering things, right? That some of you have named your children either first name or middle name and their name has a significance. You name them perhaps after your grandmother. You name them perhaps after your dad. You gave them a middle name of your grandfather. That all of these things that we do, I think subconsciously, I think what's happening when we step behind it, it's this idea of remembering and honoring and, and not being forgotten. And I think that's a part of our human nature. We want to know that our life matters. And we want to know that while we were here walking upon the earth, that we're valued, that we're known. That's what Nehemiah is writing at the end of this section. He says, remember, 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 as if he's afraid or does not want to be forgotten. And so I've entitled our, our, our sermon this morning, a, a Life That God Remembers. And the case that I sort of want to make to us this morning is that God can remember you. God will remember you. And he will not let you be forgotten. And that's important. And that's really good and kind of scary news. But it's, it's actually good news. And I think it's one of the focus. And so my, what I want to do this morning is sort of help us work through if God remembers and will remember, then how then should we live our lives now? And the first thing I think this key to sort of living a life that God remembers is, is faith. And so I want to say the faith of a remembered life. So if you want to write the points down, the faith of a, of a remembered life. You know, this is not the only time in Nehemiah where he says this phrase, remember me for my good, oh my God. If you, I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Nehemiah 13, and you're going to see this same idea it's going to be repeated several times. And so you see it, look at uh, Nehemiah 13, look at verse 14. It says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So right there, it comes up again. Now go down to verse 22 of the same chapter. Look at the last sentence. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now, here's the thing. Go to how Nehemiah ends. Look at the very last sentence in the book. You notice what it says? Remember me, oh my God, for good. 
So over and over and over, Nehemiah is consumed with being remembered by God. As a matter of fact, it's the last sentence. It's the way he ends his book is every Lord, you've seen everything I've done. Now, do not forget about me. Now, here's the thing, like when we talk about Nehemiah, like why is he sort of pressing in on this remembrance? I think because he sort of dealt, he lived with his mortality sort of before him. And you see it when he left Susa, he could have gotten killed by the king. You don't ask the king as his cupbearer, by the way, can I leave and can I go over here? No, buddy, you don't do that. You can get your life taken, right? When he gets there and surveys the city and starts to want to rebuild, as soon as he starts to rebuild, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and these neighboring villains, they sort of swarm in on him and you see this opposition and then he perseveres in it. And then you see it again where they actually try to kill him. And then we're going to see it next week. They are full court press trying to bait him out into the city, trying to get him in the temple. They are trying to do what they can to knock him off. And so he's living with this sincere mortality that's before him. And he's asking God, I don't know what's going to happen. But whatever happens in the future, I want you to remember me, to know me. Now, it's not like he's asking God to remember him in the way that we think about. Did I remember where I put my keys? As if that's sort of this factual, where did I put this thing? This idea of remembering, it has a more of a covenantal approach to it. Nehemiah is really saying, Lord, when I stand before you, when you stand and you reign upon the face of the earth and I have to give an account for my life, treat me with grace. Treat me with kindness. Treat me with your love. And so he's asking God to covenantally in the future, in the future, on that day when we will stand before God, he said, look at my life right now and do not forget me on that day. Treat me with kindness. And he says it over and over and over and over in this book. And so the question that I think is before us, before we get into the ins and outs, is just do you believe that? Do you think about that day in the future where we will stand before God when we breathe our last and we rest and then Christ returns and the entire world appears before him, you will not appear before him in a collective unit. You will appear before him as an individual person who will give an account to the things that you have done with your life. Do we think about this, this future day in the way that he is consumed with it in the book? I think it's easy to want to be remembered by people. And I think you see it when we put a, a banner on a rafter and we hang it, when we put a, a, a name on a tombstone, when we celebrate these days, these are all our attempts at being remembered or remembering people. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that jump from this desire that you have to be remembered by people. And I wanted to catapult us to this ultimate desire to be remembered by God. That's why that desire is there. And I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I spoke at RUF Summer Conference in Florida. And I took the RUF staff out for lunch, just to kind of, Jackson State staff, just to check in on them. And 
we were, were talking, and it was like, man, we really told our students, man, Pastor L is going to be preaching. You should really come to summer conference. A lot of them, it's their first time, blah, 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 blah. And, I, and then someone says, you know what? Most of our students don't even know you. They're like, who is Pastor L, right? And it stung, right? Like, it, 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 it stung just, just like, a, no, it stung a lot. I, I, didn't, I didn't say it, but it, it kind of hurt, right? It hurt because my wife and I invested nine years of our lives on that campus. We were in Sam's every Saturday night getting jumbo rice packs and food and we would get our kids and start this routine of vacuuming and cleaning up the house so that we could pick students up and bring them to church and then have them in our home. I stayed out a plenty of nights past one o'clock, right? And, and all of a sudden, in a year and a half, I can be gone and you don't know who I am? <laughs> right? Like, that's not right. Like, it hurt, right? Bro, they don't know you, right? And it was just like, ouch. Like, really? Why did that, why did that bother me? Because I want to be remembered. And I want what I've done to have mattered. And I want what I've done to sort of, at least sort of, have them feel and treat me a certain way. Oh, that's Pastor L who started this and done this. I really want to go. And they didn't go because of me, right? They went because of the beach and they, obviously, right? And it hurt. But I think in that hurt, there was something else that C.S. Lewis writes about. And this is what I want to sort of put upon you, that whenever you see these things that cause us to remember or when you have to deal with being forgotten and someone doesn't know your name, I want you to make that jump from this human perspective that something deeper is at work. And C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, uh, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger because there is a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there is a such thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can truly satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly desires were never meant to ultimately satisfy but only to arouse and to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these blessings because they are making a way, they are serving as a copy or echo or mirage of the real thing. You hear what he's saying? Don't make light of wanting to be remembered by men and women. And don't feel overly sad because you want to be remembered. But he is saying, let that propel you to the remembrance that you really desire. And it is not to be remembered by men that you ultimately desire. What you desire is to be remembered by God. For him to know your name for him to be pleased with you. That's what you desire, even though you see it sort of flushing itself out here. Therefore, a life that God remembers, the first step is faith, right? You have to make this jump. 
If you do not make this jump that the reason I care about who knows me and remembers me, if you do not make that jump from here to there, you're in trouble because there is happening. Whether you like it or not, we're going to stand before our God and our king. And what God is doing, he's giving us these emotions and they're not always wrong. They're absolutely right. And they're pointing us to something deeper and greater that we want. And that is to be remembered by God. But since none of us have died and have gone to the future and come back, this is all it has to be by faith. We have to kind of believe and assimilate what we see right here and by faith trust that this one who is written is going to be the one who will stand at the end of the earth. And we by faith have to trust that this affection we have to be remembered is a greater desire that we have to be remembered by the mighty one. A life that God will remember and treat kindly and favorably is a life of faith. You have to believe that we will stand before him. And at the same time, that's fearful. That's kind of terrifying, right? A life that God remembers requires faith. A life that God remembers requires fear. You see, when Nehemiah is praying, Lord, remember me, remember me. Three times in his book, he also says, remember them and what they've done, the evil that they've done. I can show it to you. And so you get this sort of this beautiful image where he said, Lord, remember me. Also, remember Sanballat, remember Tobiah for the evil that they have done. And so in Nehemiah's worldview, he does not expect that he's going to be treated like Tobiah and Sanballat. He does not expect that. When he says, God, remember me, be kind, be gracious, be compassionate. And for them over there, those cats over there who are trying to kill me, you remember them and you have your way with them. But that's where it's kind of intimidating, right? The fact that we have to stand to, before a God who does not sleep and does not slumber, who not only sees your good deeds, he sees it all. He sees what nobody sees. He sees every single thing. He sees the good things we do with wrong intentions. He sees the bad things we do that we can just erase with the click of a button, right? He sees it all. And if we're really honest, standing before this type of God ought to evoke some sense of fear. And that's why you see Nehemiah. Look at what he says. I did not do this because of the fear of God. Verse 15. If you go back to last week's passage in, in, in chapter 5, verse 9, what you were doing is not right. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? If you go back to the first chapter of the book when he prays, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear in your name. Look at our call to worship. As much as we talk about our sins being separated far from us as far as the east is from the west. Look at what it says. Right after, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
You see the theme all in scripture, all in Nehemiah, like God is to be feared. And this fear, right, it has a broad sort of range that on one end, it's a type of fear that when the high priest goes into the holiest of holies, he's tied to a rope in case he dies, that they might pull him out. It's the same type of fear when Nadab and Abihu offer this foreign fire and they're both consumed like right then. These are Aaron's sons consumed and killed in the temple. Well, I guess it wasn't the temple, it was the tabernacle right then. It's that kind of fear. He's a consuming fire. He is holy and holy and holy and he's just, right? But there's another side of fear where it, it's this awe, right? Where I will, if I were to be, be before him, my knees would buckle and my body would fall prostrate before this holy God that my head would bend and I would just lay there because I can't gaze upon him with my own eyes. That there's this broad range of fear that's used over and over in the Bible. One extreme is terror and, and being really afraid. He is not a man, right? He sees into the hearts of men. On the other hand, he is high and lifted up and exalted and deserving of worthy. He's worthy of worship and praise. You get this. I mean, it's just really broad. And what Nehemiah, I think, is flushing out is that never ends. You never outgrow the fear of God. You know, I know you don't outgrow this fear. Nehemiah is sort of on the back end. God has just judged Israel. And he is the guy who is coming now on the back end of wrath to rebuild a city. If anybody has reason not to be afraid, it's because wrath has been poured out. But God's character never changes. And so even him on this side of rebuilding, he is still afraid of the Lord. There is something about the character of God that makes him shudder. R.C. Sproul, he said that there is one fear that many of us do not have, that we should have it. It is the fear of God. Not only are we allowed to fear the Lord, we are commanded to fear the Lord. As a matter of fact, a mark of reprobation, a mark of a hardened heart is no fear of God before our eyes. This is lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. We are invited to call him Abba and Father and to have personal intimacy with him, but we are not to be flippant. He is a consuming fire. It is a dreadful thing to, be fall, to fall in the hands of an angry God. And so he sort of makes this case that Martin Luther was sort of unpacking this fear of God, and he says there are two types. And he says, this is this sort of servile fear. Over here, I have someone who stands out here ready to punish me, ready to accuse me, ready to do me in, and therefore I fear him. And then there's the other end. There's another fear. It's, it's sort of a filial fear. It's a familial fear where this is my father, and I'm afraid of dishonoring him. And he says, which one is it, Christian? He says, it's both. 
Nehemiah has reason to fear the Lord because he has seen God's covenant promises play out. God spent 400 years with his people in Egypt and he brought them out. He raised up Moses to bring them into the land. He raised up Joshua and Caleb and Judges and David and he gets them into the land. This plan from the beginning, from the promises he made to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will give you your own land that takes thousands of years to unpack. And here with Nehemiah says, God will wipe it all away to preserve the integrity of his own name. This city that you see in shambles it is because we sinned. It is because we transgressed the covenant. We were kicked out of the land because we did not fear the Lord. Therefore, even in rebuilding, he is still worthy to be feared. And so for us, Christian, what have we seen? What have we seen that's been clearly put on display that should cause us to tremble? It's when God puts up his own son who never, ever sinned, who never thought about sinning, who had been with him before the foundation of the world, very God of very God, that when God would stretch his own son out on a cross, and have him crucified for sins that he didn't even commit. How in the world do we think as sinners that we have any chance standing before a God and we're guilty as charged? And so we have seen that God is to be feared. We have seen how he feels about sin. We have seen his wrath poured out, not on us, but on another. And guess what? We don't outgrow that fear. Even though we're on this side of the cross with the cross behind us, Nehemiah had the destruction of the city and the exile to Babylon behind him. And even coming back and rebuilding, there was a reverence and a fear and an awe. And it never goes away. C.S. Lewis to the rescue again, right? In Chronicles of Narnia, there's a conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver. And Susan hasn't figured out that Aslan is a lion. And so Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is this lion safe? because I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about Aslan being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, but he's good. You, you hear what he wanted her to remember? He is not safe, he is not a plaything. He is a mighty royal lion good. And you don't outgrow that Christian. He's a lion, but he's good. And therefore, if we're going to be on this path 
of living a life that God remembers and rewards as covenantally faithful, we have to be in Jesus. And we have to find that that is the place where God has poured out his wrath and we can be united in Christ, but that does not mean the fear of God goes away. It stays there. We've seen what God has done to our Savior. And so that seeps in and we walk through life righteous, justified, loved, but we still honor and reverence him. If we're going to live a life that God remembers, faith that we will beat him, Fear in his character. Look at what he's done to his son that stays over us. The last thing we see is that a life that God remembers, it demands fruit. I wish I could maybe not say it, but it demands fruit. Faith, fear, fruit. And this is what we sort of see in our text. I think you have this thing. Look at verse 14, look at verse 16, and look at verse 17. I think you have these three statements, right? You have moreover from the time that I became governor. I'm going to come back and talk about that section. Look at verse 16. I also did this. And look at verse 17 and moreover. And so what's happening here is Nehemiah is sort of laying out his life. He's laying out these three spheres of his existence, whether it was in his work as a governor, which we're going to unpack, or his commitment as a follower of Christ to rebuild this wall, or in his home. He says, I got fruit everywhere. I got fruit in how I do my work. I got fruit in my commitment to the church, and I got fruit in how I manage my home. This is the fruit that's coming up. And so here's what we learn, that right here in this political realm, Nehemiah is appointed governor. Look at it. It says that, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. So here's what's happened. Nehemiah has been promoted to be the governor. He leaves Susa in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which we, you can go back and look at Nehemiah 1 and 2. And sometime in that same year, he's promoted to be the governor. Now, we know that they had a, what they call the royal highway or the royal road, and that's where couriers from the king could get anywhere within their kingdom in a matter of days. And so it's not far-fetched to think that Nehemiah goes and, and, and works and is promoted to governor sometime that year. And here's the case that I think we can make. When you look at what happened last week and you look at the national disaster that Nehemiah sort of stopped from happening? That's the guy that I sort of want to be my governor in Jerusalem. Remember we talked about last week, there's a famine in the land, no food, no crops, little food, little crops, and here's a problem. Within Judah, you have the poor people. They have sold their children, they have sold their fields, they have mortgaged their houses. To who? Other wealthy people in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, other Jews. And here's the thing, we look at this from sort of a, a, a perspective of the church, and I think that's right. When you step back from the perspective of the church, think about it from the perspective of a ruler who needs to get his money. I'm taxing all of y'all in my kingdom. You gotta pay taxes, and I don't really care what y'all do amongst y'all, y'all just need to have my money. And if you don't have my money, 
then guess what? I'm sending my military over here and we're going to take what we need. And if we don't do this, then the neighboring countries around you, well, well Artaxerxes is soft. He doesn't make us pay taxes. And now you got this whole corner of your kingdom, which is the westernmost part going into Egypt, which is the most vulnerable part of his kingdom because it's so far away. Now you got this mini revolt that can happen through these neighboring countries. Well, if they're not going to pay taxes, we're not paying taxes. And so all of a sudden, from Artaxerxes' perspective, he has to sort of intervene. I need my money because it's not just about the money. It's about my reputation. That's one end. Now, from the internal perspective of God's people, what is it like for you to pay taxes and you don't have food? What is it like for the king to tell you, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me? Well, what are we paying you for? We don't have grain. And so what Nehemiah does is absolutely beautiful. Here's what he does. He solves a national disaster by telling the people who are rich, who are wealthy, who've been making money off of the poor, give them their money back, give them their crops back, give them their land back. Why? that we can pay our taxes. If he can solve this kind of problem, it makes perfect sense that when you read the section that we're in, this guy is now a governor. That's the guy that I want running that part of the country. You can spare me from doing this. You can stop this revolt. Nehemiah thrives, right? He's promoted. Then he talks about the way the other governors did their work. Look at it, what he says. Verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, even their lords lorded over them, but I did not do so. So right there, the way that he's doing his work is different. The other governors, they ruled ruthlessly, but I'm not ruling that way. And then look at what he says. Verse 16, and I also, also persevered in the work on this wall. So now he's moving from his work for Artaxerxes. Now he's talking about this other king he works for. And his name is Jesus. He says, now I'm also working. In addition to, to this king, I'm also working for my God. And I'm dedicated to this wall. I'm not losing sight. I work for this king, but this is my real king. His work matters. And then he turns. Look at what he says in verse 17. And moreover, there were at my table. He goes from work, from church to his home. And he says, look at my home life. There were at my table 150 men, Jews and also officials, men who worked for Artaxerxes, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days, all kind of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. You see his house and who's at his table? The nations, non-Christians. Do you hear what they're doing? They're eating ox and sheep and drinking wine every 10 days. This is the kind of party that Jesus would throw, where his home becomes this entry point for the nations to come and sit. It's to have people at your table who can't repay you. They can't repay him. He's in the middle of a famine, and he's being generous. 
You see the fruit? The question is, where is this type of living coming from? Is he doing this to win the favor of God? No. Look at what he says. Look at verse 15. I did not do this because of the fear of God. You see what fear is producing? Get, get that order right or you abandon, you jettison Christianity. If you think Nehemiah is trying to win favor with God, that's not it. His behavior is coming out of this place of fear. I tremble. He's merciful. He's kind. He's not to be played with. He's generous. He's gracious. And this is cultivating something right here. And from this place, you see fruit springing up. Fruit that's touching how I work. Fruits that's touching what I do with my time. Fruit that's touching how my home life looks. It looks differently. The governors did all of this before me, but I would not do it. While I could have gained property while I built on the wall, I did not do it. While I could have put the tax on the people and made them give me wine and made them give me oxen and made them give me sheep, I did not do it. Why? Because I fear God. God has been generous. God has been kind. God has been hospitable. God has been merciful. And the fruit of that starts to come out and touch his entire life. Can we just step back and say that, man, this is impressive? I mean, he, it really reads as if this dude is like well-rounded. How many of us can do it? We can kill it at work, right? I can go to work and work 10 hours a day and do it. But man, my home life, man, I'm just, it's out of whack. Or we can get the home life right and the work life right, but I ain't really got time to go to church, you know what I'm saying, and serve a little bit, and, 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 and you know what I'm saying? Like, and what you see when you read Nehemiah is this balance. In my work, I will work. I will hold the office as other governors, but I will do my work differently as unto the Lord. I will build on this wall, but I will not do it to get rich. I will open my home and entertain, and I will do it at my own expense. You see it? You see what he's doing? Every single time he's getting to what's beneath the behavior and it's fear, but the behavior matters. Because it proves that fear is there. <clears throat> and I know it's kind of hard in our context. We don't like to say imitate Nehemiah, right? We don't like to hear be like David and go slay Goliath, right? Because we want to, that, that kind of moralizes the Bible. But I think this really is a case in point where God is putting up a man who fears him, and we're getting to see what the fear of God looks like. It looks like God's people working with integrity. It looks like God's people opening their home and being generous. It looks like God's people throwing really good parties. And if you drink, having a little wine and inviting people to your table who can't repay you, it looks like that, right? And here's the promise, and I think it really is a promise. 
for those of you right here who believe in that future day that's coming. And for those of you who carry about this sincere fear and reverence for the name of God and who have fled to communion with his son. For those of you who God could look at your life and see a holy fear that, 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 that's changing the way you work, changing the way you view your home, changing the way you view your marriage, changing the way that you view your money. You want to know what God's covenant promise to you is? I will remember you. You will enter into my joy. And I will receive you. And I think this passage pushes on us, right? I think some of us can have this idea that it's coming and we carry this fear, but it's not quite moving into fruit. And I would say John 15, God appointed you that you might bear fruit and that your fruit would last. That as you stay connected to the vine, that you would, your life would be beautiful to God and to the world. But the promise is, he will remember. In Jesus, you will not be forgotten. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit who gives understanding and insight. I pray that your people would be encouraged, challenged, shaped, convicted, that we would be those that you remember on that day, not because of our works, not because of how much hospitality we practice or how much work we do for you in the public sphere, church sphere, but because of a sincere fear and love for Christ that itself produces these things. Help us, Lord, to trust you I pray for Christ.